Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, you gates, Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. We are delighted to have Brian with us for this whole Lenten um, season. I've known Brian for over 20 years in the time that we served in the Alliance Church, and Brian has always been known as a faithful expositor of God's Word Mm. and a creative communicator. We are so blessed to have you for six, seven weeks during this season. Let me pray for you as you bring the Mm. Word. Father, your Word is true. Your Word is timeless. Your Word is um, power. And as we reflect on the images and the hints of this image of a crucified Messiah through the Old Testament, Mm. we pray that you will speak to us, that you will enlighten us and open the eyes of our heart as you did those two disciples. Mm. Bless Brian and his preparation. Be with us as we listen. May our minds engage and may we be illuminated by the word of God, open to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. So our brother read the text for us, Psalm 24, and I just want to say that this psalm really is a part of a triplet. Psalm 23, 24, and 25 are all meant to go together because they talk about our souls. Uh, Psalm 23, the most famous of all psalms, perhaps, is uh, how our shepherd shepherds our soul. David said, he restores my soul. And in Psalm 24, the one that was just read, we are called to not lift up our soul to a false deity, to an idol. And then in Psalm 25, David begins, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So Lent, among other things, is a season of paying attention to the health of our souls to our interior lives. And as we reflect on the suffering of Jesus, we reflect not only on his physical suffering, but on the internal suffering that he endured with us and for us. So Lent is kind of a dual reflection. We reflect up and we reflect in. Um, When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, or what we call the Garden of Crushing, he prayed... My soul, 
is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death, or my soul is consumed with sorrow. And so here we not only see the extent of our Lord's suffering with us and for us, but it's here that we learn how to pray. It's here where we learn how to be emotionally present with God. And where did Jesus learn how to pray like this? To lift up his soul to the Lord and tell the Lord exactly how he was feeling. He learned it from David. As a young boy, his prayer book or psaltery would have been the psaltery of David. And we know that David or Jesus learned how to pray from David because throughout his entire life, the Psalms bubbled up out of him constantly. He quoted from the book of Psalms almost more than any other book. So David was the Lord's prayer coach. And now both Jesus and David are our prayer coaches. So when Jesus in the garden tells his father what his soul feels like, He's following David's lead, who did this through the entire psaltery, saying things like, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Uh, picture David taking his hand and thrusting it into his chest and pulling out his interior life, all of his emotions, and saying, Here it is, Lord. Here's how I'm feeling about my life right now. You know, what I've discovered about myself is that I'm actually not very good at doing this. Uh, telling God how I'm feeling is not second nature. In fact, even knowing how I'm feeling does not come natural to me. And my wife and all the other women here would say, well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> it's because you're a man. And that is true. The first time that I ever went to a spiritual director, many of you know him, he's a Baptist who fell from grace, Dan Hevner. Uh, he served as a Baptist minister for many years and then wandered towards the Alliance, like some of you have done, only in reverse. Uh, Dan asked me uh, how my soul was. He said, Brian, what is the condition of your soul? And no one had ever asked me that question before, so we were treading brand new territory. And I did my best that day to spill my guts and tell him how my soul was. And he said that I was doing well. But then he asked the second question. Have you told God exactly what you just told me? And I said, no. So I had been a pastor at that point for 20 years, but I was not used to spilling my guts with God the way I did with my spiritual director that day. And then he asked the third question. He said, why not? And that's a question that I didn't have an answer to, but it sent me on a journey of learning how to be more emotionally present with myself and with God, who is the King and the Lord of my soul, of my interior life. When we talk about the whole subject of our soul and soul care and taking care of our souls, let me just define quickly what I mean. And this is not a famous definition. This is simply my definition that will help us today. I see soul care as the daily practice of inviting God into our interior world 
so that from here we are able to sustain all the pressures of the exterior world, and Lord knows there's enough of those, for the sake of the world. So in many ways, there are few things more missional than us taking care of our own souls. For how will I be able to be a soul doctor or a soul caregiver for my children or my grandchildren if I'm not taking care of my own soul? But here's the challenge that our text presents. The challenge is in why it might be difficult for some of us to practice this kind of emotional honesty with God It's actually our view of God prohibits it. We struggle with the concept of being this vulnerable with God. It's threatening. It's inhibiting. I mean, all of us here this morning would say that we fear God and we have a deep respect for him. And I'm sure almost all of us would say that we love God. But the biblical qualifications for standing in the presence of God or ascending the hill of the Lord, all the language that our psalm here uses, it is terrifying. It seems completely out of reach. And so David answers his own question. Who can stand in the presence of God? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can live in union with this holy God who has created the universe? And the answer is, He, she, who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, and who does not swear by what is false. So in other words, the many ways that we use our hands, holy. The many ways we engage our affections, holy. The many ways that we engage ourselves in worship, all holy. And the many ways that we use our tongue, our speech, holy. This is the person who can ascend the hill of the Lord. Putting it another way, only a person with unimpeachable integrity qualifies to live in God's presence, receive his blessing and his vindication. Such is the generation of those who seek your face, O God of Jacob. So the only responsible way for us to interpret this is to conclude that that a God who is this holy demands holiness from those that he chooses to live in union with. Or to quote Jesus, very simply, be holy as I am holy. Now, if I took out my phone right now and I had all of you on my, my text list, uh, let, let, me, let, me text, let me text Ben here for a minute. Uh, there, Ben Ewart. If I had all of you on my text list, and I were to text you how what I just said makes me feel, or how what David said about the qualifications for living in God's presence, what, they, what those qualifications are, I would send Ben this emoticon. It's there. It's, it's there. The scream emoticon would work just fine. Uh, literally, sheer terror. I, I, I don't qualify, I can't do this. Or how about this emoticon, the next one? Hopelessly sad. That would work just fine. Or the next emoticon, full face sobbing. 
Like, we're not going to get there. Or even this emoticon, hilarious laughing. You've got to be kidding. Any emoticon that would communicate with you that I don't feel worthy of David's own requirements would suffice just fine. Anything that would communicate that I'm not enough and therefore this whole God thing may not work for me would work just fine. And it's this very real sense of shame that keeps us from inviting God into our interior world. It's sort of like Peter, uh, after the miraculous catch of fish, he said to Jesus, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Like the song that we just sung. There is so great a chasm between us. Jesus, you belong over here because you are holy, and I belong over here because I am unholy. Clean hands, not me. Pure heart, not me. Lifting up my soul to an idol, I do it all the time. Clean, pure, truth-telling lips, not me. And so, how do we move forward from this list of four requirements? What are we supposed to do with this holy God who demands holiness from us? Well, I'm going to suggest very quickly four possible options, and I'll give you a hint here. Three of them are really bad, and one of them is really good. And then we'll have a test, and I'll find out which one you think is the good one. Here, here it is. Number one, we can deconstruct. We can remove all the moral demands from Christianity. We can just put a bomb underneath all of the laws that make us feel very uncomfortable about what God is calling us to. We can conclude that holiness no longer matters. We can be antinomian. We can say we are now in the new covenant of grace, but the old covenant of law that's completely passed, therefore we don't need the law anymore. We can recreate God into the acceptable image of our cultural deities, which is happening a lot these days. Deconstruction. That's one option. Option number two, moralism. Read the qualifications for ascending the hill of the Lord and, 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 and just uh, concluding that I need to try harder, I need to do better, I need to pull up my socks, I need to be more clean and more pure and less idolatrous and less deceptive. It's to, to reach as high as I can to reach the bar and hope that God judges on a curve. Number three, we just choose to check out. A nuts to this. I can't do it. I've tried Christianity. It doesn't work for me. And we choose to walk away from God and finally live free from all the moral and ethical demands that he has placed upon us. And for people who check out of Christianity having once believed, they will tell you at the beginning of their journey that it's euphoric. Finally, they are free, like the, the uh, young prodigal who, with pockets full of money, walks away from his father and the farm and the older brother to a distant country and asks him how he's feeling. He's feeling pretty good. Finally, he no longer has to live under the constraints of the farm. Check out. Walk away. Leave. Now, maybe you shouldn't raise your hand, but how many of you think one of those three is a really good option? 
good. No. Those are terrible options. Here's the option number four. Keep reading. Keep reading. There's got to be more to this story. Ask, where are the redemptive signals right here in the text? Where's the gospel? Where are we going to see the portrait of our crucified king, which is the theme of our whole series? And we get our first redemptive uh, word in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek your face, O God of, say it with me, Jacob. Uh, Excuse me, but is that a typo? Really? You mean God of Joseph? Or God of Daniel? Or the God of somebody where it's really hard to find anything wrong with them? Did you really mean God of Jacob? Am I reading correctly that the God who demands such high moral integrity is choosing to identify himself with Jacob? Well, I feel a lot better already. I actually feel really good. I feel good because we all know that Jacob is the mirror opposite of God's own requirements in Psalm 24. Of all the Old Testament saints, Jacob is the worst example of integrity and truth-telling. Jacob is tripping up his brother even before he's born. He is famous for being the schemer and the supplanter and the great great manipulator and the deceiver. He's the rip-off artist who, with the help of his mother, pulls the wool over his father's eyes and yanks his brother's inheritance right out from under his nose. So let's be really clear about this. Uh, Jacob's hands are not clean, his heart is not pure, his soul is not free from idols, and his mouth is not free from lies. Jacob doesn't qualify to ascend the hill of the Lord. Yet, him and God are friends. So how does this work? Well, quickly... When Jacob was running from his brother, because his brother was so mad he wanted to kill him, he stopped at a place in the wilderness for the night. And remember what we learned in Sunday school, he placed his head upon what to sleep? Yeah, a rock. The way of the transgressor is hard. It certainly was for Jacob. And that night, what happened? Well, God visited him. Now, I heard this week through a pastor that I really respect by the name of John Tyson, who pastors a church in New York City. He was commenting on the Asbury revival, and he said this, maybe some of you listened to his podcast, the title was, God Comes Where He's Wanted. And I I think that's true. I think God does come where he's wanted, and I think the kids in Asbury want God, and I think they have truly met God. However... And I'm sure John would also agree with this. The Bible also says that God many times comes where he is not wanted. And this is Appendix A right here. Jacob did not want God or his truth-telling ways. Jacob wanted control. He wanted manipulation. He wanted deception. He wanted to continue to be a narcissist. He was not interested in God, but God came to him Anyway, so when we ask the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Jacob? 
No, not Jacob. He doesn't qualify. But no problem. God will descend to him. Remember the song that we, we sung as kids, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder? Actually, it's got kind of some bad theology, but we learned it anyway. What happened with Jacob's ladder? The angels were ascending and descending. Heaven was coming down to earth. The holy was coming and invading the unholy. And then remember the story of the angel of the Lord or the man that wrestled with Jacob all night? Remember what happened there? He wounded Jacob, put his hip out. He forgave him. He restored him, he renamed him, and he promised him blessing and vindication and a glorious future. And we have to go, what in the world did Jacob ever do to deserve this? And the answer is, nothing. Who said that we are saved by grace alone and that not as, uh, as a result of our works, lest any person should boast? And then God started a lifelong process in Jacob on this night that slowly changed him into a truth-teller, so much so that at the very end of his life, this was last week's sermon, he was used by God to speak gospel truth to his sons and basically foretell the coming of the Messiah, that Jesus would come and the obedience of the nations would be his. So the one who could only tell lies before grace sucker-punched him now can only tell the truth. And you go... What a transformation this is. It's like Paul saying to Titus, when the grace of God appears bringing salvation to all people, it always teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And we see that happening in the life of Jacob. And then when the, the whole wrestling match was over and the dust settled, Jacob gave that location a name. He called it Bethel, God's house, Jacob's sinful life had become the dwelling of God, and Jacob wasn't even asking for it. But, you know, we have to ask, how did this happen? God has standards. God has moral demands. <laughs> sort of like, where's the justice? Show me the money. Did God simply turn a blind eye to Jacob's sin? Did God say, listen, Jacob, it's okay. Your job is to be human. It's to be sinful, and my job is to be God. You sin, I'll forgive. It'll be a deal. Is that what God did? Did God simply choose to forgive and forget? How can a holy God forgive people who are truly unholy without morally compromising himself? Where is the justice? Well... The last paragraph answers that question on a cosmic scale. You know the part about lift up your heads, O ye gates? And I want to talk to the choir for a minute. Do you know where George Frederick Handel placed this text in Handel's Messiah? What part of history did he place it? After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Then the chorale sings... Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And Jesus has died and has risen and has ascended. And then you hear, whoever it is, telling the gates of heaven, the eternal gates, to wake up, to lift up their heads. Why? Because the King of glory is coming back 
into heaven. We go, well, did he leave? Yes, he did. Yes, he left, didn't he, 2,000 years ago. He left and arrived in a little Judean village called Bethlehem. Yes, he left. Why did he leave? Verse 8 tells us because he alone needed to fight and win a battle that none of us could fight or win. (laughs) Who is this king of glory? It's this person who left heaven. And how did he fight and win this battle? It was a battle against sin and Satan and death and hell. And he fought it by living a sinless life and suffering in our place and dying uh, as the last Adam, as as, as the new humanity and rising from the dead and ascending to heaven as the Lord over all creation. Throughout his life, he lived with unimpeachable integrity when none of us could. His righteousness has now become ours. We call this imputed righteousness. We've done nothing to deserve it. But now when God looks at those who have placed their trust in Christ, they see the straight-A report card of Jesus. They don't see the C's and the D's and the F's of Jacob or of us. Our sin and punishment was laid upon him as we heard sung And through his resurrection, he overcame death and gave us the gift of eternal life. And here's the the beautiful part. I mean, it's all beautiful. Now, through the gift of his Holy Spirit, he is progressively making our hands more like his. And our hearts more like his. And our lips more like his. Wherever anybody is justified by faith alone, sanctification always results. So the Lord has not lowered his standards. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Jesus can, and all of those who are riding on his coattails. Let me ask you, are you riding on the coattails of the Lord? Or on the coattails of your parents? Or your grandparents? Have you chosen to come into union with this one who left heaven, fought for you, and now by his spirit is knocking on your heart's door and saying, come on, let my righteousness be yours. So to answer the original question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who can stand in his holy place, or is God safe to be invited into our interior life? Really? Can I tell him absolutely everything? And the answer to that question is seen here in John the Beloved burying his head in the chest of Jesus, the King of glory, who came and did what John could not do, came and did what you and I cannot do. Is God safe to be invited into our interior life? I guess in many ways the answer to that question will be seen this week in our prayer closets. Will we, with unveiled faces and with unashamed hearts, turn our faces towards the God of Jacob where we are free to say, because of Jesus, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Lord, we pray that 
our hearts would burn within us this morning as we contemplate these glorious gospel truths from your word. And this week, help us to be doers of the word and draw you into our interior life, into our suffering, into our insecurity and our fears and our anger and our lust. Oh Lord, thank you for your grace. You are the King of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.